Hello and welcome to Bad Gaze, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. Uh, my name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer, and today we're bringing you a very special episode to mark the release of our new book, Bad Gaze, A Homosexual History, which is released today by Verso Books. Um, the book is packed with profiles of various nefarious Nellies, from the Roman Emperor Hadrian all the way up to Yukio Mishima, and it tells um, a wider story, one that we, I guess, tell on this podcast, which is about the history of the development of male homosexuality as an idea and perhaps its failure as an identity with all its complicated links to colonialism, masculinity and empire. Uh, so you can buy it now from today at versobooks.com or at all good independent booksellers. And you can also find a link to it on our website, badgazepod.com. So to celebrate the launch, today we have a very special guest and we'll be discussing, I think, um, many of these ideas around European ideals of masculinity and their relationship to imperialism and to certain values around the male body. Uh, today's guest is the inimitable Ruby Han. Uh, Ruby completed her MA in history in 2020 and her MSc in history in 2021, both at the University of Edinburgh. And her research is focused on masculinity, sexuality, and the body in early 20th century Britain. Hello, Ruby. Hi. Hi, Hugh. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, so let's get straight into it. Who are we talking about today, Ruby? Uh, so today we're going to be talking about sex symbol, empire builder, and the father of bodybuilding, Eugene Sandow. Great. So without wanting to seem like too much of a super fan of the show, I'm going to very much copy your style and start with a little anecdote. Great. Um, so in 1901, the so-called father of bodybuilding, celebrity strongman and sex symbol, Eugene Sandow, had his nude body cast in plaster. Behind this endeavor was a Professor Ray Lancaster, a mollusk expert and curator of the natural history department. <laughs> I know, moll- it, it's already funny. It's already okay. funny. <laughs> mollusks, mollusks and muscle men. Exactly, exactly. Um, so behind this endeavor was Ray Lancaster. Uh, he was also the curator of the natural history department at the National Museum, which is what would eventually become the Natural History Museum. And Lancaster saw this project as an important contribution to science. He maintained that Sandow was the perfect type of European man. And he envisioned that the resulting statue would eventually form part of a series, which would illustrate the physical types of different races. For research, yeah, like I'm, I'm casting it's this guy's funky body for research, but then he has to sort of spoil it all by going into this like, yeah, Victorian sort of race science. Yeah, why have you got to make it about race science? Why yeah. can't you just have a hot plastic cast statue for yourself? <laughs> um, so as you've already picked up on, Lancaster was also clearly motivated by his personal admiration of Sand- Sandow. Lancaster described his desire to preserve Sandow's body in order to hand down to future generations the most perfect specimen of physical culture of our day. Um, right. This process, it was really an ordeal for the bodybuilder. He had to remain flexed for periods of 15 minutes at a time to allow the plaster to harden. Uh, the project also came at a great cost to the museum. Lancaster hired well-known cast makers, Messrs. Bruciani, who are perhaps best known for the work they did for Queen Victoria a half-metre-tall fig leaf to go over her replica of Michelangelo's David, which she was gifted <laughs> by the Grand Duke of Tuscany. Uh, despite the cost and the immense effort on Sandow's part, Lancaster's vision was ultimately never realised. 
When the statue of Sandow was eventually unveiled, it only remained on display for three months before backlash caused it to be relegated to museum stores. Some fans claimed that the measurements of the cast were wrong. It was bulging in all the wrong places. Other museum visitors complained about the statue's nudity. And finally, some took issue with the likeness of a a common showman and musical star being on display in such a hallowed institution. Despite this, Sandow's fans clamoured for casts of their own. Uh, in what historian Michael Anton Budd describes as the pleasures of possession and fetishization of the body, casts of Sandow, usually just a single life-size arm, were sold to his most devoted admirers. Wow. I open with this bizarre anecdote because it perfectly exemplifies, I think, some of the key themes we'll see throughout Sandow's life. Sandow's attempts to become a respectable middle-class man of science Uh, the comparison of white bodybuilders to the bodies of men of other races, and this idea of the body beautiful and the body sexy. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, there's so much going on there already, you know, like this sort of, um, uh, what's the word, like, uh, like finding a way to, to, to basically, like, have you know, images, photos, um, statues of hot guys around. So you have to like create this entire world in order to justify it, I guess. Oh, and then also yeah. this, this response as well of like, um, like sort of Victorian Britain and, and the sort of morals of the middle class of, around nudity and the body as well. It's like a strange, it's like a strange tension between, um, being obsessed with it and being obsessed with these like bodily types, I guess, and, 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 uh, and its relationship with race, of course, and then also being sort of disgusted or horrified or or scared of, of the naked body. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think something that we'll, we'll touch on more, I think is all these, all these alibis for, yeah, this, this is the reason why I'm, I'm looking at pictures of naked men. This is my alibi. Um, so trying to write a condensed biography of Sandow for this podcast proved to be quite a difficult task. Um, as we'll see throughout the episode, Sandow was extremely good at developing uh, a personal brand. I think arguably he was maybe one of the world's first modern fitness influencers. I think he'd do great on Instagram if he was mm-hmm. born today. Um, and as a result, when studying his life, it's really difficult to separate fact from his, his own mythology. Um, so I've looked at a variety of different sources, uh, which we can talk more about at the end. But the two full-length biographies I've made use of are by David Waller and David Chapman. And even their stories differ at points, which is something I've tried to make clear. Sandow confirmed his own official account of his early life when he was only in his early 20s, thanks to an authorized biography by a Graham Mercer Adam published in 1894. Uh, according to this biography, he was born Friedrich Wilhelm Müller in Königsberg in East Prussia. Uh, that's the city that is now Kaliningrad in Russia on the 2nd of April, 1867. Uh, his father was a former officer in the Prussian army turned jeweler and gemstone dealer, and his mother didn't work. His mother was of Russian descent, and he later took his stage name from her maiden name. The Russian Sandov was Germanized into Sandow. But already the waters are, are murky. Um, David Chapman claims that Sandow's father was instead a humble greengrocer, whilst David Waller claims that Sandow was actually the illegitimate son of two German parents and was adopted by the people he referred to as his parents throughout his life. 
a fact that was supposedly revealed by Sandow's solicitor while Sandow was applying for British citizenship. Uh, Chapman doesn't mention the possibility of adoption. According to Sandow's own accounts, he was either a sickly and delicate child or perfectly healthy but no athletic prodigy, depending on when he was asked. One story that he did stick to unfailingly was a trip to Italy with his father, aged 15. Uh, He describes being struck by the sheer beauty of statues in Rome and Florence. To quote, I scarcely knew what strength was. Then it happened that I saw it in bronze and stone. My eyes were opened. The Greek and Roman statues I saw inspired me with envy and admiration. I was morally and mentally awakened. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, like that, that link with this sort of like this Roman ideal and stuff is like, it's, it's explicit to him from the start. Absolutely. That's his sort of superhero origin story. Yeah. Um, yeah and we'll, as we'll discuss, uh, Sandow would hark back to the ancient Greeks and Romans throughout his career. Did this trip to Italy ever really happen? Who's to say? But that was the story that he picked and he stuck to. In his teens, Sandow took up gymnastics, specifically Turnverein, which is a particularly nationalistic Prussian fitness movement developed during Napoleon's occupation. He also spent time visiting the circus or wrestling arena against the wishes of his parents. Sandow then claims that he went on to study anatomy at the University of Göttingen, but his newfound vocation for fitness drew him away from his studies, causing a rift with his family and led to him being cut off. While Sandow did undoubtedly possess a great deal of knowledge about anatomy, several biographers don't really buy this story. It's more widely agreed that Sandow spent this time with a travelling circus, performing as an acrobat and a gymnast rather than a strongman. Waller also theorises that Sandow left Königsberg at this point, in part to escape national service. Whether it was the result of the circus going bankrupt or Eugene the scholar being cut off from his father's money, either way, Sandow found himself alone and penniless in Brussels, age 20. At this point here is where all the biographies, authorised and unauthorised, contemporary and more modern, all converge a little bit more. Sandow is down on his luck in Brussels and here he meets his first mentor. Louis Durlacher, or Professor Attila. Attila was an accomplished musical strongman at this point in his 40s. He's credited with inventing a number of the formalized poses in a, in a classic strongman routine. According to one account, Sandow simply stumbled across a crowd of novices watching Attila work out in public. There, he handled the weights with such ease that he was apprenticed on the spot. Another version of the story comes from a Sigmund Klein, a man who married one of Attila's daughters. In this version of events, Sandow was presented to Attila by a group of art students who claimed they had found the model with the finest physique they had ever seen. So, like a strongman is like it's like a circus, right? It's like in a circus. Yeah. So, a strongman. This is. This is a good point to get into it, actually, maybe. A strongman act is, it comes from sort of the vaudeville, musical, circus traditions. It's feats of strength, like bending iron pokers. Um, it's often helped along with illusion. And as we'll see throughout his career, Sandow's kind of big project and his big contribution to bodybuilding was kind of moving bodybuilding away from these kind of circus strongman origins and more towards this Victorian and Edwardian ideal of self-help and physical culture and fitness. 
So, yeah, because that's like the image I've got in my mind is like, I've never really thought of, but like when you're a kid, you see like, I don't know, cartoons or whatever, Victorian circuses, and it's always like a guy with those like dumbbells with like the two huge balls at the end and like, yeah, in like a sort of um, like leopard skin off the, off the shoulder number sort of thing. Um, but exactly. it, it's kind of performance, but it's also, is that, like you said, it's like illusion as well. So yeah, it's kind of like a bit like magic or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that related as well, though, to like, I guess, the fact, like, diet and stuff at the time? You know, like, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, that I guess these, like, cultures of, like, exercise and, and muscularity and stuff emerging more in the 20th century, but at a time, I don't know, like, malnourished, like, the population is more malnourished or something or I don't know like it's a strange it's a strange thing I guess to think of as entertainment like let's go and watch a guy like lift something really heavy yeah you're you're right but it hmm although probably not actually now I mention it because actually there must have been like pretty hench guys I don't know like working in steel mills or something I don't know I don't know. Now you now you bring it up. I'm I'm trying to think. I'm not really sure what the appeal is of going to watch a strongman act because it's not something I would necessarily want to do. I guess it's it's part of a greater day out at the the music hall of the circus. There's the the showmanship of it all. In in the case of someone like Sandow, there's also the kind of sexy element of it all. But he he's quite unique in that regard. Um, he is, you know, quite unusual in the fact that he is doing the strongman act whilst also being very handsome, considered very handsome. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, Sandow's maybe his his life's work perhaps is moving weightlifting and bodybuilding away from these more entertainment origins and under the the broader umbrella of physical culture and self improvement. And and this and and as making it into a fitness movement rather than simply a, a form of entertainment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know what the appeal is, but I kind of I think I would like to go and see it. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I do love circuses, so I mean, yeah, I, I love I love seeing a guy getting fired out of a cannon. Like I remember the first time I saw that, and I was like, I don't know why this is so entertaining, but I love this. There, there is an anecdote that unfortunately I felt like I couldn't fit it in because. Um, I just felt like I was running out of time, but the, there is a an anecdote sort of early in his career where he uh, he wrestles a lion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, um... Yeah, but it's it's a it's it's a, it doesn't go well for him. Not because he is horribly mauled or anything, but because um, the lion can't really be bothered, <laughs> and it, it just doesn't end up looking very heroic for him. Um, I think the the excuse that that he and his 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 manager put out is that. They'd had a practice wrestle the night before, and he terrified the lion so much. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. That was an interruption. Where, where, where were we? So he's he's um. This is the point when he's sort of still doing this vaudeville type. Yeah, yeah, and um, he's been introduced to this professor Attila, and yeah, one story is that he he shows up and he handles some weights, and he does such a good job that Attila is so impressed that he apprentices him immediately. Another story is that some art students present him to Attila and say, you know, we found the most beautiful man. And what I find interesting about these two stories is that one really foregrounds Sandal's strength and the other his beauty. Mm-hmm. But throughout his life, he was sort of broadly seen as, as perfectly marrying both strength and beauty. And the, sec- the success of his act really relied on both. 
Um, so Sandow was taken on as a, a combination janitor, assistant, and pupil, but eventually he progressed to one half of a double act with Attila. It was most likely Attila who suggested that Sandow adopt his stage name. Uh, Eugen means good in Greek. Later, it was suggested that it was chosen in tribute to Francis Galton, the so-called father of eugenics, yet. Or some contemporaries even thought that the term eugenics was maybe in reference to to Sandow. And and neither of these are true. Um, The two men did eventually become aware of each other. Uh, Galton visited a bodybuilding competition that Sandow held in 1901, but this is much later in his career. Uh, unfortunately, the Attila and Sandow double act never came to fruition, or not to the extent that it was planned, as Attila suffered an injury. But Attila's mentorship had already done a lot for Sandow. It bulked him up, it had taken him from his gymnast's body to the body of a bodybuilder, and it had given him this new stage name, even though at this point he was still really quite skint. Um, so to try and rectify this, he takes on a lot more modelling work, He was definitely not shy about setting up these opportunities for himself. A lot of the descriptions I've read of of how these partnerships came about, they read as if he was essentially just turning up on artist's doorstep and and stripping, uninvited. But it it worked. Uh, Between this modelling and his time in the circus, uh, Sandow's early 20s would be understood as fairly seedy by his contemporaries. Artist model was not a well-respected job. It was associated with sex and circus performers were hardly considered any better. Earlier in the century, the Earl of Warrington had married a circus performer. And as a result, he was just shunned by polite Cheshire society. Local parishioners refused to let the church bells be rung for their wedding. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a fairly seedy start. The beginning of Sandow's ascent to celebrity superstardom really begins within just days of his 1889 trip to London. Here he triumphed over two other well-known strongmen, Charles Sampson and Franz Bienkowski, or the Cyclops. I know, it's good, right? (laughs) The the pair were offering £100 to anyone who could beat the Cyclops in feats of strength and £500 to anyone who could beat Sampson. Um, and I don't want to go into too much granular detail about the actual feats of strength, you know, who lifted what and how many times. Uh, but there are two things I want to note about the competition. Firstly, Sandow appeared on stage in what was essentially a tearaway suit. Uh, very sort of Magic Mike or like hen party stripper of him. <laughs> he sort of shows up on stage dressed as a, um, a kind of respectable gent and he he quite literally sort of tears it away into his athletic gear. For Monty. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Secondly, we, we have a bad gaze connection. One of the judges for the rematch was the Marquis of Queensbury, the father of bad gay Lord Alfred, Lord Alfred Douglas. Ah, Bosey starts. Yeah, the, um, yeah, the, the horrible bigot and, uh, yeah, uh, homophobe. That's the one. So although so actually, judging a judging judging a weightlifting competition with a well, the, was, the rip away suits <laughs> exactly, but he was it was um he was a he was a sportsman he was a he was a boxer I remember yeah like Queensby Queensby rules like yeah. Queensby rules are based on him right yeah so although accusations of trickery and counterfeit weights were thrown around by both sides Sandow. He wins both the initial competition and the rematch. He never received any of the promised prize money from Sampson and Cyclops, but he walks away with a payment from the theatre management 
and 150 pounds a week contract for himself and Attila at the Alhambra Theatre. Following this, probably a lot of money in those days now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, Following this first run of London performances, the two men go on tour across the UK. And what follows now is what, in my head, I really refer to as Sandow's sexy years. Um, He's kind of reaching the peak of his fame, and he's at a point in his life where he's still very comfortable profiting from his sex appeal. Um, And it's also in these years that we get the most iconic images of Sandow. He really hones his look. Um, As I've briefly touched on, Sandow was truly a master of branding himself. In some ways, it's a shame that this is an audio medium because so much of what made Friedrich Muller into the great Eugene Sandow was photography. I would really recommend that you you go and look them up. Just just Google Eugene Sandow and any picture that comes up is just bound to be a winner. Yeah, I've, I looked at some uh, before you start, start the show. He's, um, I mean, he is ripped. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he is. Um, but not in that very sort of mo- that that modern like Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of dehydrated bodybuilder look. Yeah, yeah, but he's got like a real set of washboard abs, which yeah, is yeah, absolutely. And I think what set him apart is that he's also he was considered to have quite a handsome face. He's got his little mustache and his curly hair, and he was he was seen as very almost like pretty, like having quite an angelic mm. face on top of this certainly in his youth, on top of this ripped body. One of the first notable photographers to capture Sandow was the Dutch-English painter and photographer Henry van der Weyde. He took a series of portraits in his London studio in 1889. Here, the 22-year-old is posed imitating a classical statue. He stood on a plinth and he's wearing nothing but a fig leaf. This classical aesthetic continues in later portraits. Uh, In a 1893 series by the photographer Napoleon Saroni. Saroni. He's also known for his iconic portraits of Oscar Wilde. Um, in these photographs, Sandow is sometimes pictured in like an athletic, like restless singlet, but more frequently he wears only a fig leaf and gladiator sandals. There's also hot, a fo- hot yeah. <laughs> There's also a photo from the following year by Benjamin Falk, where Sandow is recreating the classical statue The Dying Gaul. Again, fig leaf, gladiator sandals, this time kind of reclined in, you know, what maybe is kind of the final moments of death, but is also maybe like a swoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anna Cardencoin, Faye Brower, Jim Elledge, and Thomas War are all academics who have written extensively about photos of Sandow. And they've all identified re- these references to classical art as evidence of deliberate homoerotic coding. So War, in particular, describes the use of props and costumes like animal skins, clubs, and gladiator sandals as fastidiously embellished, one might even say fetishized. Meanwhile, Elledge goes so far as to describe the photos as highly erotic spectacles targeted to gay men. Yeah, because this is sort of emerging in, I guess, like the late Victorian era when it's, it's, it's sort of the same time that the, like, the early ideas of like what a homosexual identity might be are sort of emerging. So, and, and, and part of that project, like with the, you know, the, the earning, the earnings, um, the poets in, in the UK, Uranian, the Uranian poetry movement and stuff is like very self-consciously looking back towards, um, classical models of, mm. like, of like male same-sex desire, I guess. So, so for him to be posing like this, is that like a, a, a conscious, what you seem to be saying, what these academics are saying is that it's like a conscious, 
hints that what would be picked up by gay men at the time as as like yeah it, it, that, you know they'd see it as being like oh this is kind of what we're into mm, that's that's certainly what these academics are arguing and i i don't know how convinced i am um another academics k mitchell snow argues that you know these classical references aren't evidence of proto-gay sensibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, they should be understood as part of a longer tradition of, of living statue posing. I think something you've oh. talked about on this podcast before, like uh, uh, Tableau Vivant and pl- mm-hmm. Pose Plastiques, this idea that this vaudeville tradition of you can you can do a nude performance and it's not pornographic as long as you're perfectly still and copying a work of art because that gives it some sophistication and, and intellectualism regardless of whether Sandow was was targeting gay men specifically on purpose gay men were certainly buying these postcard photos uh postcard photographs of male nudes including those of bodybuilders were liberally exchanged throughout london's growing upper class homosexual network um the senders and recipients of these photographs include the poet and critic john allington simmons uh the poet Edmund Goss and the former lover of Oscar Wilde, another bad gay. Again, Bosie's here. Bosie's back. Yeah, he's, he's back. A bad penny. <laughs> that's interesting because John Addington Simmons was um, the co-author of uh, Sexual Inversion with Havelock Ellis, which is like the first sort of medical textbook on, um, uh, I guess, yeah, homosexuality. Well, obviously, they they conceived it in a different way, but yeah, in English. In 1889, uh, Goss bought a selection of Sandow's photographs from a London shop, and he sent them onwards to Simmons. Uh, Simmons was also a a physical culture enthusiast himself. He even sponsored a public gymnasium where he displayed photographs of Sandow. However, his appreciation for Sandow's body clearly extended beyond aspiration for his own physical development. In his letters to Goss, um, he's really sort of fawning he's really like thank you so much thank you thank you for getting these for me thank you for sending them he describes his desire to collect copies of all the nude studies which have been taken of this hero his comments on Sandow's body are also not solely focused on muscular development because he he writes that the photographs quite confirm my anticipations with regards to his wrists and ankles and feet (laughs) My favourite part of this story is that in December 1889, before sending the photographs on to Simmons, Goss was at the funeral service of Robert Browning, his good friend, uh, one of the most famous poets in the English-speaking world. It's being held at Westminster Abbey. There's all this pomp and circumstance. And and Goss is spending, spending the funeral service sneakily looking at photographs of Sandow. In Westminster Abbey, um, you know, che- checking his grinded nudes during a uh, during a funeral service. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sort of scrolling through first traps on Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> very that vibe. I think here is maybe where we get into just sort of touching on on some of the bad of the bad gays. Um, Sandow presenting himself as the the Grecian ideal, this this classical body does have its more sinister side. Um, if we look beyond just quite how campy the aesthetic is on on first glance, um, not only Sandow, but 
bodybuilding as a movement more broadly held up Greek and Roman statues as the pinnacle of male beauty and muscular development. In Richard Dyer's 1997 monograph, White, Essays Essays on Race and Culture, he describes the built body as it is cultivated and presented as drawing upon a number of white traditions. Dyer's discussion of bodybuilding is predominantly focused on the latter half of the 20th century. However, one of these white traditions that he identifies is classicism. And from its inception, bodybuilding held up the classical body as the pinnacle of achievement and beauty, and that body was understood to be white and European. The ideal, the the idealization of the classical body within bodybuilding circles also went beyond aesthetic appreciation. Ancient Greece and Rome were associated not only with white muscularity, but also with imperial power. In his own writing, Sandow argues that it was the drift into a sedentary mode of living that caused the downfall of the Roman Empire. Which is a hot take. I think there's a lot of different opinions on the fall of the Roman Empire, but that's that's a hot take. But it's quite, I mean, I guess, uh, I guess it's kind of, it's quite a common one in some ways. Or uh, I guess not decadence or something, you know, they drift decadence, into decadence. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, it lasts today. It, seem, it seems ludicrous, you know, like the idea like, oh yeah, like decadence caused the, 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 um, the Goths to invade and society to break down or whatever. But you can see the same thing today, you know, like um, when the invasion of Ukraine started, like the number of sort of columnists in the UK and America who were sort of saying like, oh, it's because we're obsessed with pronouns that, that Russia feels over, like it, it feels empowered enough to invade the West or something. Yeah, this is this is actually something I've been thinking about and, and writing about at the moment because um, before I moved into bodybuilding, my research was all about um, conscientious objection in the First World War and oh, depictions wow. of conscientious objectors as gender non-conforming and queer and degenerate. So war, this is something I've been thinking a lot about a lot at the moment. But bodybuilding was in part an attempt to recapture elements of an idealized imperial past in which men, women, and children were in the habit of taking systematic physical exercise daily. That's the quote. This fondness of the idea of empire and I guess, yeah, ideas about, about decadence and decline um, are ideas we're going to return to. In 1893, Sandow sailed to the United States to tour there for the first time, accompanied by his best friend, Martinus Sievking. Martinus Sievking was born in 1867, same year as Sandow, and he was a Dutch pianist and composer. He, he composed and conducted the music for many of Sandow's performances. The two had already been living together for some time, and then they shared a room when they arrived in New York. A reporter from the world who visited Sandow at home on one occasion found the two men stripped to the waist with Steve King playing piano while Sandow exercised in time to the music. (laughs) Dudes rock. Yeah, just guys being dudes. (laughs) To, To quote the reporter, he is fond of the music and Steve King likes to see Sandow's muscles work. (laughs) <laughs> and and the pianist Steve King's snake uh, stripped to the waist as well. He yep. For some reason, he's got his clothes yeah. off as well. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it easier to play the piano, maybe. Well, this is it. He was he was one of kind of Sandow's personal pet projects. He um he thought that he could be a better piano player if he was more muscular. 
Um, so Sanov <laughs> did a lot of training with him. And by the end of his career, yeah. he had these massive muscular hands that he became quite known for. From all that, that training, that- the piano playing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Um, the nature of their relationship, it's been much speculated on, but clearly neither men had, neither of the two men had any shame about this, this level of kind of domestic intimacy. They're inviting a reporter in to see them. It was at this point in his career that Sandow supposedly rebuffed the advances of Carolina Otero or La Belle Otero, a Spanish actress, dancer and courtesan. According to Otero, when offered champagne, Sandow told her that he preferred milk. He preferred a glass of milk, and eventually she, in her own words, sent him back to the young man he was living with. <laughs> For a nice glass of milk. Yeah. <laughs> At some point during these sexy years, Sando drops his old mentor, Attila, and uh, shortly after arriving in America, he's approached by a man called Florence Ziegfeld Jr. Uh, Ziegfeld is often referred to as the, the glorifier of American womanhood because he's known for putting on these these spectacular theatrical shows with showgirls inspired uh, by the Yeah, yeah Zygfried, Zygfried, the Secret Follies. Exactly. This is this is the man. Um and he's looking for acts for his father's theater in Chicago to coincide with the Chicago World's Fair. And Sandow accepted a contract which would entitle him to 10% of gross billings, which was a very favorable deal that uh, Ziegfeld no doubt came to regret. Um and Ziegfeld turned his powers of, of glorification onto Sandow. So one major change was Sandow's onstage outfit. Although he wore very little in photographs, it was only under Ziegfeld's direction that he swapped his onstage body silks for little silk briefs. Ziegfeld was also instrumental in introducing a new part of Sandow's act. After Sandow left the stage, certain lucky or indeed generous, uh, audience members, both men and women, were given the opportunity to go backstage and feel Sandow's muscles. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty quickly, anyone who was anyone was bragging about having felt the man himself. It It was the new kind of society brag. A Washington Post article from 1896 describes the experience. Um, So the article reads, His colossal figure, nude to the waistline, stood out in bold relief, and about him gathered the visitors, most of them nervous and trembling. Sandow at once laboured to put the feminine contingent at ease. He invited them to come up one at a time to examine his muscles. This at first they were loath to do, touching at the giant gingerly with gloved hands. Gradually they became more confident, and off came the gloves. <laughs> <laughs> I think that must have been a real money spinner, I think. <laughs> Yeah, the, the Magic Mike uh, um, comparisons continue, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, unfortunately, this this didn't last long because in 1894, Sandow married Blanche Brooks, who was the daughter of a Manchester-based photographer and friend of Sandow's, Warwick Brooks. The two moved to Manchester and they had their first daughter, Helen, in 1896. And And this marked something of an end to Sandow's sexy bachelor years. Much to Ziegfeld's despair, the backstage touching ends, or it doesn't occur at least quite so openly. And Sandow really sets about him. Sandow really sets about fashioning himself as a middle class English gent. And from this point onwards, he takes great pains to circulate images of himself in a in a suit in a smart frock coat. Um, but as you can imagine, these were never as popular as, mm. the, as the fig leaves. <laughs> in 
1897, Sandow opens Sandow School of Physical Culture on 32 St. James's Street, London. The Institute offered personal consultations and one-on-one training. Uh, for those middle and upper class clientele who might otherwise shun gyms, the Institute was decked out in a luxurious style to match its swish location. So successful was this branding that even the future George V paid a visit in 1898. Stando eventually set up a chain of secondary locations, one in Manchester, another in Liverpool, and several in less wealthy areas of London, like Crystal Palace and Tottenham Court Road, which offered more affordable group training sessions. So we've touched on this before, but... At this point, I think it's worth briefly defining physical culture. You know, his institute was called Sandow's Institute of Physical Culture, not of bodybuilding. So physical culture is a health movement which developed from the middle of the 19th century. It encompassed a number of competing doctrines and ideas, and thus it's it's quite difficult to define and set boundaries on. For some, physical culture was closely tied to muscular Christianity, this philosophy which held that strength and health were necessary to a righteous life. We see this in things like um, Baden-Powell's scouting for boys, these ideas about scouting. Um, Others understood physical culture in maybe a more sort of alternative, hippie way as as a companion to various different health and life reform movements, including diet and dress reform, nudism, alternative medicine. And although physical culture was linked to athletics and sports, it's not a sport in itself. It's a movement and it's it's not competition. It's a process of self-improvement. Although it was understood that uh, each physical culturalist, their individual efforts was contributing to the improvement of society as a whole. As we've mentioned, bodybuilding has its roots in circuses and on the vaudeville stage. Uh, but thanks like thanks to men like Sandow, it developed as a distinct sporting discipline rather than just a spectacle. And it's brought under this umbrella of physical culture and, and thus making it far more acceptable within polite society. All that being said, while Sandow was working so hard to develop a more wholesome image for himself and for bodybuilding... There was still something of a more seedy and suspect side to gyms and bodybuildings. It was was something of an open secret that gyms provided a homosocial space for shared nudity and the the touching of bodies, all under this alibi of athleticism and athletic appreciation. A fascination with gyms and athletic cultures is clear in contemporary sexological writing. So in his 1904 study of Berlin's third sex, uh, the German sexologist who we've talked about a lot in your podcast, um, Magnus Hirschfeld, he described how the social lives of earnings revolved around sports facilities, especially swimming pools, gymnastic clubs, and YMCAs. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Truly. (laughs) Nothing's ever new. Yeah. In his 1908 study, The Intersexes, the American author, good name alert coming up, um, (laughs) Edward Irenaeus Prime Stevenson, who was writing under the pseudonym Xavier Maine, he argued, I know, I know, I know, (laughs) um, argued that uh, similar sexualism was widely manifested in professionally athletic occupations and that scandals of the homosexual kind are not rare in athletic clubs. And 
while Maine is trying to kind of keep this objective scientific tone within the same page, he just breaks down into gossip. And he he describes how one of the most distinguished strongmen and wonder athletes of the day is attracted to men, almost to the complete indifference of women. And who's to say, but this got me wondering if this was if this was Sandow, because, you know, I mean, who, it fits. Who, fits. And mm. who, who else is one of the most distinguished strongmen of the day? But yeah. who's to say? In July 1989, Sandow's magazine of physical culture was launched in Britain. This is Sandow's own personal magazine. It boasted a professional editor and featured a variety of different contributors, including, on occasion, Sandow himself. The magazine also featured a correspondence section, which allowed for fans to contribute. And and Sandow maintained that every single one of his letters received a personal reply. Um, but it, it didn't. He had a team of assistants who had stock replies that they were sending out. But um, this this myth maintained that you could you could, and it was important. It was an important part of the magazine. There was a correspondence culture mm. around this magazine. Sandow's magazine was one of many niche or hobbyist publications that were being founded around this time. Thanks to the 1870 Education Act, there was this newly literate mass audience. It's through his magazine where we possibly get our greatest insight into Sandow's politics, and we start, we, we start to dig into some more of the bad. So we, we've already touched on this, but... Um, Physical culture literature, like Sandow's magazine, perpetuated the idea that British masculinity was in decline as a result of the feminizing influence of modern civilization. This idea of degeneration and and decadence alleged that Britain was facing a crisis that was both medical and moral. Britain's men were understood to be increasingly effeminate and both physically and morally corrupt. This weakening of the masculine body was then thought to be representative of the the decline of the British nation and a a loosening grip on the empire. Anxieties about the future of the British empire often manifested as a desire to build a strong English race. Uh, And and the world of bodybuilding was, was certainly not exempt from falling under the spell of eugenic ideas. In his first article for the first ever edition of Sandow's magazine, Sandow speculated, surely what has been done for the horse and the dog cannot be impossible of accomplishment in the case of man. However, Sandow could never wholeheartedly endorse eugenics because this would undermine his whole business. His his promise is, is strength for all. So whilst physical culture literature did often include eugenics discourse, it was necessary that their ultimate message still be one of of cure and restoration of the body over the course of a lifetime, you know, not over generations, or they would risk losing their readership. Yeah, right. Like surely some of his appeal is that like, um, yeah, like health and fitness and stuff is is not genetic. You can transform your body. That's what gets people... You know, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So there's always this kind of walking mm. a tightrope line in Sandow's magazines and and all the other physical culture magazines of the time about like dabbling in eugenics, but then also not wanting to say like you're ruined. This, this is it. You're going to look like yeah, this yeah, forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, no, there's no hope. 
Exactly, exactly. Um, so following the 1901 census, uh, which demonstrated the decline in the physique and stamina of the British race, that was the, the quote, Sandow insisted that something must be done. And ultimately, that something was not eugenics, but bodybuilding. Another key theme of Sandow's magazine was the association of bodybuilding with Britain's imperial endeavors and, and the British military. Sandow had long tried to associate himself with the British army. Um, he frequently claimed that his, his personal system of physical development had been adopted by the British army, despite receiving no official endorsement ever. <laughs> he just, he just told people this. Um, and as far back as, as, 1892, Sandow was uh, lecturing to trainee officers at the military training school Aldershot and in his usual style of the time, uh, allowing the young men to feel his body. <laughs> um, the early years of Sandow's magazine coincided with the Second Boer War, which was a conflict which really forced the British government to have a, a real reckoning about the country's imperial power and the health of the nation. Um, it was this moment of realization that uh, British recruits were not fit and healthy enough to go and fight in imperial wars. So despite the individualistic nature of bodybuilding as a practice, it's not a team sport, it's something you do on your own, um, Sandow frequently presented it as having collective benefits on a national or racial scale. In a 1900 article entitled Growing Soldiers Without Conscription, Sandow summarized this ideology. He says... I tried to show last month the responsibility which rested upon the individual as a patriot to make himself as fit as possible for the contingency of his country's call. Here, bodybuilding is really presented as, a, as an obligation of citizenship or a, a national duty that's like analogous to military service. Mm. And Sandow's support for the British Army during the Boer War extended beyond the pages of his magazine. Uh, in his performances at London's Hippodrome in 1900, he replaced his standard costume of leopard print briefs with khaki shorts, sort of a soldier's khaki shorts, and he incorporated new patriotic elements into his show. Uh, this included a sequence in which actors playing British soldiers were faced with a, a bridge that had been blown up by the enemy. And then Sandow would brace himself to form sort of a human bridge. And then he would have soldiers kind of escape over him playing the bridge, <laughs> all set to the tune of Rule, Brita Rule Britannia. So a <laughs> lot going on here. <laughs> Ever a showman. Truly, yeah. I think when I was first talking to you about the possibility of doing this episode, this is something I mentioned that, you know, even at his most kind of imperialist, there's still something really campy mm. about Sandow in, in just everything he does. And um, leopard print briefs and khaki shorts was what I called my my thesis. That was my <laughs> title. A So a final element of Sandow's personal politics that I want to touch on is his attitude towards Britain's imperial expansion and the, the civilizing mission. So by civilizing mission, I'm referring to the shared project of a multitude of imperial powers, you know, state authorities, Christian missionaries, businesses, and white settlers to reform the way of life of imperial subjects to make this way of life appear more like the practices in the metropole. So Sandow frequently claimed that the solution to Britain's woes were 
a, a rejection of modernity. The cure to poor health and failing masculinity was, to quote, bringing of the body to the condition which nature intended it. Well, the... Whilst the city caused the corruption of the body, in Sandow's words, nature makes no mistakes. And whilst Sandow's magazine promised that bodybuilding could reverse this decline within the comfort of one's own home, these romantic descriptions of a, a pre-modern lifestyle that's, that's closer to nature also suggested that moving away from Britain's cities could have restorative properties. And, and this belief wasn't uncommon. Many British men believed that a relocation, provided they went to a suitably inhospitable environment, would make them hardy and masculine and strong, like going out to the frontiers, making a man of yourself in the colonies. Uh, and in this regard, the emigration of white men to elsewhere within the empire was understood as a positive activity, which would help rescue white British masculinity from decline. However, here's, here's where we find quite a tricky contradiction. Uh, Sandow's magazine did not simply argue that civilization was harmful to the metropole and beneficial to the empire. It argued that civilization could damage the masculinity and the bodies of non-white imperial subjects, just as it had damaged white men back home in Britain. So Sandow's magazine repeatedly praised pre-modern or primitive bodies before expressing the need to bolster white imperial masculinity just pages later. So one, one article I think really exemplifies this is um, an 1899 article entitled Native Races from a Physical Standpoint, the Maoris. Uh, to be fair to stand out, wasn't written by him. It was just in his magazine. It was written by William Pember Reeves, who was a New Zealander politician, cricketer, historian, and poet. Uh, and the premise of this article is that the Maori were once a strong, beautiful people, but they had sadly succumbed to the damage of modern civilization. The article, in... oh, please. Sorry, I was just like, I mean, this is kind of like what Ben Ben talks talks about quite a lot, um, and his research is on, I think, but which is the the sort of relationship between um, homosexual men, especially in the early twentieth century, and the way that they sort of viewed um, quote unquote primitive peoples, uh, primitive male bodies as as um something more natural and like that what was attractive about it was that it was it wasn't tainted by civilization and and that's why they they fetishized um colonial subjects yeah so the, there is definitely an element of that kind of that that sexual side of it in this article it talks about the the brown muscular legs of the maori and how white men look look feeble alongside them um so that there is this, I think Robert Aldrich describes mm. it as this idea of like um, the empire as like a playground for white gay men. It's this kind of exotic fantasy of of yeah. handsome men being everywhere. Yeah, yeah, we um, see it in, t um, in um, uh, T. Lawrence and and also in, in men like Roger Casement as well. Like, mm. although he is a, a good was a good gay, there were definitely aspects of this sort of. Um, relationship towards um uh, uh colonized subjects as as yeah as a fetishization yeah so this article begins by talking about you know the maori were so so beautiful they were so muscular um but then it it, it goes on to perpetuate this idea that was often articulated by proponents of, of white settlement schemes that the maori were dying out it it, it says to quote 
changed and fallen away as the Maoris of New Zealand unhappily are today. Still, even in their present comfortable but semi-degenerate state, they are physically one of the finer races of the earth. So it's this idea of, you know, these these men are beautiful, but they are they too are being damaged by civilization. Mm. So the author explicitly blames the civilizing mission for this decline in physical condition, stating, "At last, the white man came, bringing the manifold curses of civilization." So here we see this bizarre contradiction at its most stark despite advocating for the empire and saying you know it's good for white men to go out and be in the empire because it's it's masculinizing the magazine also presented native men as as victims rather than beneficiaries of the the expansion of the british empire and british imperial power aligning bodybuilding with imperialism wasn't only a political statement but it was also a shrewd business move So Imperial Networks enabled the circulation of physical culture literature beyond Britain, and it it facilitated the expansion of their readership. Um, Something I talked a lot about in my thesis, which we're probably not going to get much into today, is the fact that um, Imperial subjects read these magazines um, and they wrote into these magazines, even though lots of the magazine was about how expanding the British Empire is good. In the case of Sandow, it's not just his texts which travelled the globe, but the man himself. His 1904 world tour included visits to South Africa, India, Burma, the Strait Settlements, Hong Kong and Shanghai, all of which were under direct or indirect British rule and influence. He was technically travelling as a non-official with no formally recognised colonial status or role. But his comments to the press throughout the tour were firmly pro-Empire. Eight months of Sandow's tour was spent in India, where he received particular acclaim from both Indians and white settlers. Although bodybuilding was a global phenomenon, India stands out as a colonised country which adopted the discipline with a particular enthusiasm. And there's been lots of writing about why this is, about India's sort of pre-existing culture of strength um which we can link to in the show notes i'm sure um in most cities in india sandal's live performances attracted huge audiences large enough to necessitate a specially built tent which held eight thousand people and wow. included to quote cheaper seats for the poorer class of natives throughout his tour sandal was hailed as sandal palwan uh, which was a honorific generally applied to athletes, especially wrestlers. Uh, and he was challenged by many by many Indian strongmen and wrestlers in, in feats of strength throughout his tour. The great success of Sandal's time in India was the transformation of readers and audience members into lifelong devotees. Uh, editions of Sandal's magazines frequently featured letters from India, and a January 1905 article claimed that of all of the countries in our great empire, probably India can claim more adherence to the Sandow system than any other. Uh, Sandow's legacy also lived on in India longer than it did in Britain. The Bollywood icon P.K. Rajas Sandow took his name from Sandow due to his impressive physique. Um, in 1938, over 30 years after Sandow's own magazine ceased publication, the Marathi language magazine uh, Vayayam um, a physical culture magazine featured Sandow on the cover. And 
there's plenty of writing about bodybuilding and Hindu nationalism, which again, can't possibly get into now. Yeah, that's fascinating. And as, as I've touched on, physical culture literature contained eugenics discourse, but not to the extent that it undermined the message that masculinity could be restored within a lifetime. And as a result, bodybuilding had to maintain that any man, regardless of race or climate, could be made strong. As part of his world tour, Sandow selected one man from each country he visited to be brought back to England. By training these men, who were, to quote, in the majority of cases weaklings, Sandow aimed to prove that his system could render anybody beautiful. And although he moved these men away from their home countries, he didn't subscribe to the commonly held belief that some climates inevitably resulted in weakness. Uh, many Brits still maintained that the subtropical climate towards the south of the Indian subcontinent resulted in, in weakness and laziness and effeminacy. But Sandow observed that during his tour of India, seldom have I found a country where I want to exercise as much and as often as I do here. That's not to, that's not to say that Sandow was particularly progressive. Um, Although he spoke of bodybuilding as returning the body to nature, he simultaneously presented his system of exercise as thoroughly modern and, and scientifically informed practice. Uh, he understood his body as sort of living evidence of European scientific superiority. And his, his rhetoric echoed that of the civilizing mission. This idea that a modern muscular body was theoretically available to all, but only those who submitted to white European intervention could attain it. In addition, although Sandow argued that uh, Indians could be made strong, he also believed them to be considerably less advanced than white Europeans. Upon arrival in Calcutta in 1904, Sandow spoke to a journalist from the Bengali paper and, and told, told him, in 200 years, Indians will have splendid results. So although bodybuilding ultimately promised this egalitarian future in which all men are strong, it continued to perpetuate racial difference by suggesting that some men were in greater need of development than others or that achieving strength would be more difficult for some. Mm. It's this idea that everyone can do it, but it's, it's, not to it's not so egalitarian as to say that everyone can do it at the same pace. Everyone will, will find it as easy. Right, yeah. When Sandow returned from his tour, he set about the process of gaining British citizenship this lengthy and quite invasive process gives us another bad gaze connection. Um, Sandow made quite a blunder when choosing his character references, calling upon Lord Ronald Charles Sutherland Leveson Gower. And Gower is generally agreed to be the inspiration for Lord Henry Wotton in The Picture of Dorian Gray. And he was implicated in the Cleveland Street scandal. Which ah, is the, right. Yeah, this discovery of a gay brothel that you've discussed in your Prince Albert Victor episode. And we actually we actually go into in um, quite a lot of detail in in the new book. There's oh, a, fantastic! There's a chapter yeah, that deals with Cleveland Street. Excellent. So, despite these less than squeaky clean associations, Sandow gains his British citizenship in 1906. But by this point, it's clear that his new home is losing interest in physical culture. New fads have simply come into fashion, most notably cycling. At this point, everyone's getting big into cycling. Um, by 1907, Sandow's magazine ceased production, and although he promised that he would launch a new magazine very soon, it never materialized. And his network of physical culture institutes also closed, with only the original St. James's Street location remaining. 
Uh, he did have a final few successes. Um, as tensions with Germany heightened, he stepped forward and offered to train recruits for the London County Regiments of the Territorial Forces. This was a grand plan that included awarding a cash prize of £1,000 to the most improved man at the end of his regime. And as a result of this success, he was also appointed Professor of Scientific Physical Culture to King George V in 1911. George V was a long-standing admirer, despite not being a particularly strong and robust man himself. Despite these successes, the final decades before Sandow's death, uh, this final decade was largely dedicated to his huge variety of doomed business ventures. Uh, Sandow slapped his name on anything, anything and everything, from corsets to a special health and strength cocoa powder. And the failure of these money-making schemes can be, for the most part, blamed on poor business decisions. But to be fair to him, he was also the victim of, of growing anti-German sentiment, especially in the case of his cocoa, which was boycotted after it was revealed to be based on a German recipe. Sandow was also the subject of some truly ridiculous rumours, including one that he had been executed in the Tower of London on charges of being a spy. <laughs> and this uh, this almost makes me feel for him in some ways. I don't know. Um, he spent all his life being incredibly patriotic. He's a British citizen by choice. He so repeatedly and desperately tried to associate himself with the British Army. Uh, in, in 1908, he contributed vast sums of money to both Ernest Shackleton's Antarctic expedition and the London Olympic Games. He does all this and none, none of it sticks. His final book, Life in Movement, was published in 1919. He spent his final years out of the public eye, but, event but planning an eventual comeback tour of the United States that never materialized. He died in 1925 and much like the beginning of his life, the end too was shrouded in mystery and rumour. Some claim he suffered an aneurysm as a result of lifting a car from a ditch. In some versions of this story, he was even rescuing a person from inside the car. Other biographers speculate that he might have succumbed to syphilis. The extent of his, his womanising and his faithfulness to Blanche were debated throughout his life and... Yeah, the two biographies I read, one describes him as a womanizer, the other describes him as having very little interest in sex at all, but it's a theory. Whatever happened, he had a, a short, small funeral in a church near his home in Holland Park in London, and he was buried in an unmarked grave in Putney Vale Cemetery. His relationship with his family had long since soured, for reasons we can only guess, and his grave remained unmarked until the 2000s. Well, thanks for that, Ruby. That's like, uh, yeah, like a fascinating, um, a f fascinating life story and um, amazingly told. Thank and you. I, I, all the way through, I just kept thinking, like, like I said before, like the more things change, the more things stay the same. Like, there's so many um, similarities and resonances with like contemporary society, uh, contemporary masculinity, and the fears, and anxieties around it. Um, and maybe before we get to talking about that, though, one thing I'm really interested in is like the relationship. And like I say, I say this as someone who's worked in publishing, I guess, but it's the relationship between like printing, like the printed words, um, and those sort of technologies and how that enabled him to build, I guess, like, um, an identity, a brand, uh, but specifically, I guess, like the relationship between photography and, and, um, and bodybuilding. Cause, cause I guess like pre, pre, uh, pre photography, but also pre 
the ability to print cheap, cheap, cheaply print photographs, you know, in, in magazines and stuff. There's not really a sort of media landscape or a media space for bodybuilding, right? Because it's so visual. It's so much about the body. And you can describe these guys, but it, it's never going to have the same effect. Um, yeah. And then I, 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 I wonder if you could like talk a little bit or if there's a, um, if that continues after Sandar's death, like, cause, cause the other thing that I was sort of thinking about when you were talking is, um, this way that bodybuilding still and throughout the 20th century were gave like a, a cover, like a, um, plausible deniability for homosexual men to, you know, possess images of these like hot ripped guys and stuff. Cause I know like in the sort of fifties and sixties, um, in in the US especially and also I think in Europe but like like a athletic um pictorial sort of things like these these body culture things were like very popular ways that gay men sort of communicated with each other as well great wow um, so there's a maybe a couple of different questions or talking points well there's there's no question there was no question no, more, <laughs> Sorry, more, I'm, I'm, I'm more question. of a comment than a question guy yeah I've turned into him no um I think First of all, regarding kind of the, the visual culture of bodybuilding and, and cheap printing, um, Sando is kind of around in his, in certainly in the earlier part of his career, he's sort of around at the same time as this great kind of Victorian postcard boom. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some amazing stats about, um, just how many thousands of postcards were being, were being sent every day um yeah i've got it here it was referred to as sort of the, the golden age of photographic postcards beginning in 1895 um there's then this postcard boom that peaked between 1900 and 1920 uh during this time 20 postcards were posted annually for each inhabitant of britain so Big. He's he's coming into this new culture of 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 mass cheaply printed photographs, and he's great at it. He he really sees the opportunity and seizes it. Um, and then also with 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 printing, um, with with magazine printing, um, I think it's really important to note that that Sandow was not the only person by by far, mm-hmm. certainly not the only person publishing these kind of magazines um in my thesis i didn't focus on sandow specifically more about kind of physical culture magazines as a as a type um maybe sandow's biggest competitor in this regard was an american man called uh bernard mcfadden who you sometimes run into Bernard McFadden if you're if you're reading about like fad diets and alternative medicine mm-hmm. because he was quite an eccentric guy. He was not a bodybuilder himself in the same way as Sandow, although he did put lots of pictures of himself in his own magazines. But um, he had a lot of kind of quirky, shall we say, ideas about health and fitness, including things like intermittent fasting, which I feel like is is coming back round now mm-hmm. to being quite trendy. Um, but, but he had a magazine, um, called Physical Culture. And like Sandow's magazine, Physical Culture went global. It was, it was, it was, uh, printed and, and, and sent all over the world. And we can see this because we, we can see in, in the letter pages of this magazine, um, letters from, from men all over the world. Um, there's really, 
associated with these magazines is really this this correspondence culture. It's it's about community building as well. It's it's not just a one sided interaction. People are also sending in photographs of themselves. They're writing in. Um, not in Sandow's magazine, but in in Barnum McFadden's physical culture, there is even kind of like a like a personals ad section where you can you can seek out correspondence with uh, with other <laughs> bodybuilding enthusiasts, okay. um, which is really interesting because um, people kind of describe themselves in 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 the magazine in the these like personal ads. It, it does read like a dating ad. It's you know I'm I'm blonde and well built and I'm seeking same. Um, for uh, for working out buddies. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. There's one that's like, ah, oh, I don't have it to hand, but there's one where he's uh, 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 a guy describes himself as like fan of like open window sleeping. Because <laughs> there's, 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 there's also this uh, this kind of associated health movement about like fresh air. Yeah, yeah. Um, a couple it of it makes him sound like a voyeur. Yeah, um, or an, an exhibitionist. No, I just I guess I guess like these things kind of do give cover, you know, because because part of it is also is that they can um, they can um, sort of get around the very very strict censorship laws that emerged, I guess, in the late nineteenth early twentieth century, um, especially around like mail, like stuff being sent in the mail, like um, you know that becomes mm. like a big crime. Is like up until I think in America, like until very recently, um, that like a way that you could suppress like queer culture and queer organizing especially is to um is is to make it a sort of federal offense to send send stuff through the mail as that's obscene like obscene materials but yeah. this gives you a sort of a way that you can be sending these images but obviously be saying like oh this is um this is uh, uh like health related i i think i also read something that the jock strap is like a sort of gay male fetish item or like uh, the obsession comes from them being used so much in the 1940s and 50s in these magazines I didn't know that, but that makes sense. Um, Thomas War, who I, who I quoted earlier in the episode, he has this book I found really useful um, that has also one of the best titles of any of the books I, I read for this. It's called Hard to Imagine, which <laughs> I think I think is really clever and really good. Um, and and he talks about more more broadly about um, this idea of alibi and and the artistic alibi, which is where like. No, I'm looking at these photos because they have artistic merit and the athletic alibi where it's um, I'm looking at these images because uh, they're for athletic inspiration and I'm mm-hmm. bodybuilding photographs kind of fall under both alibis in mm-hmm. that like it's about athletic inspiration because these men are very built, but there is also like an artistic element or like an attempted artistic element in the way that these photographs are posed and costumed and accessorized. Um, yeah. But uh not Sandow necessarily, but uh McFadden, he got himself in a lot of trouble uh over the years being based out of the States, uh in for for the the, the content he was publishing. Um mm. which is kind of ironic because Sandow's the one with the kind of disputed sexuality, whereas like Bernard McFadden is like possibly the most heterosexual man to ever live and like <laughs> make very clear all the time. Um but he he was repeatedly kind of accused of obscenity and even even charged and hauled in front of judges for obscenity and his defense was always um if you find my magazine pornographic then you're a prude yeah um and you know the only reason you find this dirty is because 
your American dirty mind. Society, your dirty minded American society is too prudish. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I think something that like is also interesting uh, is that with this athletic alibi, you men can look at they can desire other men under the guise of athletic appreciation and it's the line between the desire to kind of attain a more muscular body for oneself and, and desire for the muscular body of another man is kind of blurred mm. um but where this becomes tricky and and interesting this is something that uh, gregory mullins has written a lot about is um with examples like that article about about Maori men, um, when these magazines feature or talk about non-white men in quite uh, in a sort of overtly sexy way, um, the white male readership has more of a difficulty with this like athletic alibi because you know throughout these magazines you're being told that you should. Um, aspire to white muscularity so this athletic alibi of like i just want to look like him i just want to be like Mm. him becomes a bit more kind of loaded and tricky when it's it's an attraction to to these these non-white bodies in these magazines you Mm. you can't get away with that athletic alibi as easily um yeah, that's interesting. I also wonder if there's like something going on here as well, like that ties to this sort of tension you get in Europe and America throughout the 20th century um, with homosexuality. These sort of twin strands of like, I guess, a more queer sort of uh, queer homosexuality that's sort of more uh, self politically self conscious, but also is more questioning of gender that you start to see, for example, in people like um, uh, Hirschfeld. And then that continues, obviously, through to like the Gay Liberation Front, for example, um, all of which have very complicated relationships with colonial subjects as well. Uh, but this sort of tension between that sort of uh, model of homosexuality and then it's like masculinist one, which is much more um, uh, ten- tends to, to emerge on the right, but sort of like it's, it's very much based around like um, homosexuals being more male, like the most male, and they're attracted to that. They, they renounce femininity. Um, and that you sort of see, obviously, like in, in Germany in the 1930s becomes like a big sort of strand. And, um, and, and I was sort of thinking that as well with relating it to today, I guess, which is like this, this, um, like growing up, I was always, for obvious reasons, my eye was always drawn to like magazines like Men's Health, which always had these like ripped hot guys on the cover, but they're extensively for like heterosexual men. Um, you know, like the the stories inside or whatever is like you know ten ways to please your girlfriend or whatever. But all the all almost all the images are of rich guys. Uh, whether that's sort of part of the same same th- uh, sort of the same the same model, which is like I don't know, like a, a way to negotiate your desire for other men without feeling that your masculinity is like threatened, um, that you're like weak. You know? Yeah, I, I think I think definitely I think that's you know definitely I think that's definitely what these magazines serve to do, and I think. This is also a period where I think lots of people's kind of understanding of of who like homosexual is as a as like particularly in Britain is like someone like Oscar Wilde. Yeah. Um, so if you're if you're looking at these magazines, there is almost a, a second option being presented here, which is this like hyper masculine kind mm. of way of understanding yeah. your sexuality and your attraction to men and your own body. Um, but something I, I I would note, which I 
found interesting and really surprised me is um Edward Edward Carpenter, the the sort of poet and, and sexologist and utopian socialist, um he was big into some of the ideas of 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 this kind of bodybuilding movement. Mm. You know, he had this idea of like, you know, in a utopian society there'll be a fresh air gymnasium and everyone will do daily right. exercise. But his understanding of of homosexuality is you know, much more based on this idea of like queer people as a as a third gender and like standing somewhere between masculinity and femininity and and being more enlightened and modern as a result, but still mm. being kind of ambiguously gendered. And yet, despite that, he went in for a lot of the ideas in this kind of movement of you know, yeah, we should return to a society where everyone does daily exercise and there should be big outdoor gymnasiums where everyone works out together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess in a, in the early twenty, like late nineteenth, early twentieth century, those these things are still very much in tension and within these movements. You know, like like in the just sort of um, free body movement in Germany and and the Van der Rogel movement. You know, these like youth youth groups about getting back into nature and stuff. They, there was always like tensions as well between the left and the right. Mm. And, you know, there were socialist versions and fascist versions, and um, um, so 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 maybe like in those very early days of that these sort of cultures are emerging then they're less defined in terms of like that sort of politics mm. um lastly i don't know um just like yeah like i know i keep saying this but it, it just seems still so relevant today like last like um when we recorded this which was um, a couple of weeks before it's going to air but i think a couple of weeks ago there was a whole thing with tucker, tucker carlson the Fox News host in his new documentary, which is about the collapse of American masculinity, um, which was being like rightfully completely rinsed on online. I saw a lot of people like uh, taking the piss out of it because, for example, one of the things that he he features on this is scrotum tanning, uh, and he, he's really obsessed with low sperm counts. Like the, okay. the, over the last sixty years in America, um, male virility is dropping. Um, and yeah. obviously, he's like very much like the spokesman for um, the the let's say in his mind, more respectable end of the alt-right. But you sort of see the same, this same sort of panic um, emerging, um, these sort of similarities, I guess, between this fear about the collapse of the British Empire and, and the mod- modernity weakening um, uh, uh, masculinity and you know, uh, put, possibly putting the empire under risk. And then you see this, these sort of similarities with today with stuff to do with, like uh, obviously, stuff like um, the sort of moral panic that's emerging around trans people um and also um uh, increasingly around um lesbian and gay people in america uh with this yeah like this fear that america is collapsing and it's not quite so strong in britain but it still exists and yeah it is it's something that i've noticed too um in my undergraduate when i when i first turned my interest towards studying masculinity in the early 20th century i was studying pacifism and conscientious objectors but um what really drew me in was this this feeling of like oh wow this this all feels so familiar you know Mm. all this idea about all these ideas about a crisis of masculinity and like the decline of the nation and the male body as as representative of national security this Mm. all feels so familiar and actually now i'm now i'm further in and now i've kind of stayed on this 
this topic is my academic interest, I, I find myself thinking like, what was was is there ever a time when we've not been convinced that masculinity is in crisis? Yeah, is there, is there ever a point where <laughs> people, where society as a whole feels generally pretty happy that masculinity is kind of a st- solid and stable force? I don't know. Um, no, I mean, it was a big it was a big threat in America as well in the nineteen fifties. There was like a lot of fear that, that um, homosexuals being like naturally seditious was. Um, was a security threat as well, and mm. uh, was was sort of going to bring down the the government against the, the, the threat of communism. Now they actually purged like about five thousand gay and lesbian people from the State Department based on this this sort of fear as mm. well. You make a really interesting point about um, all of these kind of commentators who seem to be bringing up the Ukraine war just to then turn it back around to kind of domestic culture war issues mm. about 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 trans people, about about queer people, and I, I've seen it too. I've seen it in it's it's something I am kind of talking about and writing about a bit at the moment as we record this. Um, and yeah, I think, like you said, nothing, not, you know, nothing ever changes. Uh, nothing's ever new. I think now I don't know what my point is. Apart from yes, <laughs> you're right. You're right. The the we we are in the midst of a panic about the health and strength of our nation and when we say health and strength of the nation most people actually mean kind of the health and strength of of masculinity and the masculine body mm-hmm. and in this is only ever heightened in in times of conflict we can see throughout Sandow's career that he you know he has these big jumps in popularity at times where things feel quite uncertain things feel quite anxious you know times like the second Boer war he really kind of mm. comes into his own um one of the biographers i was reading uses the phrase come off the hour come the strong man like he comes in and he's ready to everyone's anxious about masculinity and he's ready to sort it all out um and yeah i think that's that's what we're seeing at the moment we're seeing these uh various online figures who are promising that that their way of living can can single-handedly regenerate masculinity, masculinity yeah. yeah on that question uh, one brief last question because a lot of this co- contemporary discourse is really underpinned by like a sexual a very reactionary sexual politics partly sort of like in incels for example but also to do with like the anti-porn movement and like no this like the no fap movement and this idea that like the like pornography culture um is like destroying um vir- virility and masculinity was there as as we've sort of essentially been saying that like a lot of his magazines are essentially soft core porn for for men at the time was there a similar fear um in the sort of late victorian era that like that 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 these images that pornographic images or semi pornographic images um were detrimental to men's health that is a really good question um just briefly yeah it's interesting that um mm. Sandow's magazines and his images of himself read as essentially softcore porn, and they still do today because I was reading a biography of Sandow in the pub the other night and someone made a comment about like, oh, someone's someone's brought porn to the pub. <laughs> um, I think what surprised me is that, you know, we think of Victorian society as, as quite prudish, uh, as extremely sort of reserved, and yet Sandow just about always managed to kind of skate along mm. on this level of like it's instructional it's mm-hmm. um 
you know, it's it's artistic, it's inspiring, it's uh, it's a classical reference, so it's intellectual, even to an extent, the stuff with like inviting people backstage to touch his body, it wasn't like something shameful or dirty. It was quite a brag to be able to say that amongst like polite society ladies to be able to say that, you know, you'd done that. Like yeah, yeah. Um, you, you have stories of senators' wives going and going and feeling Eugene Sandow and, and not being ashamed of it. I mean, that's not to say that these magazines were free from criticism entirely or Sandow himself was free from criticism entirely. Like I mentioned right at the top of the show, his statue caused a lot of backlash because of its nudity. And um, in the States, like I said, Bernard McFadden's magazine got a lot of backlash for its for its kind of sexual content. Um, but generally, bodybuilding was, and physical culture more broadly, was tied into this these kind of new agey ideas about alternative ideas about dress reform like women shouldn't wear corsets and 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 nudism and um and also like um anti like anti-masturbation era like uh, politics the era as well no like the sort of the, the uh, um kellogg's you know like this these health retreats but like a big issue is like trying to stop people masturbating yeah, so so Sandow was kind of less explicitly ever talking about kind of sex and virility in mm. in in his own work, but but Bernard McFadden being the other kind of great bodybuilding influencer and publisher of the time, he was massively into into ideas about virility. He he wrote a book entitled "The The Virile Powers of Superb Masculinity." <laughs> um, his he was much more into the the um yeah the whole kind of vitality and and virility element um so in some ways despite being kind of the 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 sexiest and the nudest of the bunch um in comparison to some of his other bodybuilding contemporaries sandow does seem like the least interested in mm. sex or sexual issues um but yeah, there's a there's a whole bunch going on. There's a much more open talk about sex and sexuality that, than you might imagine for kind of the era. But then there's yeah. also this: you're a prude. Why can't a man look at the body of another man and not be dirty? Yeah, you guys yeah. are all prudes. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't feel like uh, I've come to any sort of uh, meaningful conclusion there. Just that. There's a lot of ideas swirling around about what is prudish and what is not prudish and no, no. sex and sexuality. Well, thanks very much for that, Ruby. Um, yeah, a fascinating life. Um, if people wanted to know more about Eugene Sandow, what were some of the sources that you used for your, for your research? So the two biographies that I made use of were The Perfect Man, The Muscular Life and Times of Eugene Sandow by David Waller and Sandow the Magnificent by David L. Chapman. Uh, one thing I would note about these two books is that they are very much biographies and they are, the authors themselves kind of come across as fans to an extent. Um, and the, the Chapman book is a little bit older. Um, and I think there have been some changes. Some of the language seems slightly outdated when you read it mm -hmm. now. And there has been more of a resurgence in interest in, Eugene Sandow since it was initially published 
Um, then some of the, the academic articles and books that I used were, um, M.A. Budd's The Sculpture Machine, Physical Culture and Body Politics in the Age of Empire, uh, Faye Brower, uh, Villarize, Virilizing and Valorizing Homoeroticism, Eugene Sandow's Queering of Body Cultures Before and After the Wild Trials, uh, Sebastian Conrad's Globalizing the Body Beautiful, Eugene Sandow Bodybuilding and the Ideal of Muscular Manliness at the Turn of the 20th Century, Jim Elledge, Eugene Sandow's Gift to Gay Men, uh, Greg Mullins, Nudes, Prudes and Pygmies, The Desirability of Disavowal in Physical Culture, uh, Kay Mitchell Snow, Does This Fig Leaf Make Me Look Gay? <laughs> Great one, I know, I know. Um, and uh, Kerry A. Watt, Cultural Exchange, Appropriation and Physical Culture, Strongman Eugene Sandow in Colonial India. Um, many, many more, but that is uh, just a, a quick a quick few. Great. Well, we'll throw them in the show notes. So if people want to um, read them, they can, they can look for them there. And if people want to follow you, can they find you on social media? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Ruby Volunteers, um, where I occasionally write things and you can get in touch with me to have me on your podcast, maybe. <laughs> Got a like sh- shameless, shameless. Yeah. A new career in the offing. Um, and if you want to follow um, follow us, um, we're at Bad Gays Pod on, on Twitter and Instagram, or you can um, go to our website where you can pre-order the book, um, where you can listen to all the previous episodes, um, where you can buy T-shirts, and that's badgayspod.com. Um, or you can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy. So um, thanks for joining us for this very special episode. Um, we hope you enjoyed it and we hope you enjoy the book if you're going to read that. Um, and until next time, goodbye. Oh, bye. Bad. 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 Bad.